Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I am the farthest thing from a refusing to wear a mask so I can cough on my neighbor and we can both die a miserable death to own the libs kind of guy. But it's finally gotten to the point where even I have to admit it is time for this lockdown to end. Uh, we have to get back to normal. Things, frankly, are getting too ridiculous. Um, the latest example from the same head of the same alphabet organization who, at the outset of the pandemic, urged us all to protect ourselves from the coronavirus by drinking tea, and who then decided that when boxing resumes, we might as well have judges score fights from their bathtubs while doing shots. Yeah, well, what, what, what's the problem with that? Seems reasonable enough to me, but uh, oh, okay, continue, whatever. There's a good way to expand the judging pool, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, he has now responded to the five-second video clips of Mike Tyson hitting pads that we've talked about once or twice, and the associated increasingly out-of-control online fervor about Tyson making a comeback by declaring that, and I quote, I'm not going to kill the dream. I'm going to be very supportive of Mike Tyson. He deserves it. If the dream is to say, I will be ranked, I am saying, yes, we will rank him. As a reminder, this is the head of one of the largest alphabet organizations that quote-unquote runs boxing. <laughs> As a further reminder, Mike Tyson is 53 years old. He has not fought for 15 years. He has not won a fight in 17 years. He has not won two fights in a row in 20 years. He hasn't won three in a row, by the way, since 1996. To put this in the context of other sports, since Tyson last won two fights in a row, Tom Brady has played the entirety of his NFL career. In that same span, the NBA Zion Williamson has lived the entirety of his life. So, look, it's always possible. Maybe some other sport will come along to outdo us. Maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers will re-sign Terry Bradshaw to start the season under center. But I kind of doubt it. Look, boxing is likely to be one of the first sports to return, but it is doing a great job in its absence of reminding us all that while it may be in many respects the purest and most dramatic of sports, it is also unquestionably the stupidest. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going to dispute that boxing is stupid, but uh, in defense of boxing in that regard... I guess it's a little unfair to say that the stupidity of what the alphabet bodies bring to boxing represents the stupidity of boxing itself. Praise Jeebus in that respect, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> um, but promising Mike Tyson a ranking if he announces that he's fighting, that is some all-time desperate-for-attention, <laughs> ass-kissing business there. Um, and if I was a boxer who got bumped down a spot in the rankings <laughs> to make room for 53-year-old Iron Mike. Oh, Lordy, I am suing the hell out of the WBC. <laughs> um, but just in terms of your overall point uh, of all of that, that, that the lockdown needs to end to stop the ridiculousness, Kieran, you should know by now, pandemic or no pandemic, the alphabet groups will always be ridiculous. Yes, yes. It is true. At least at the moment, the ridiculousness is theoretical. So perhaps we should be grateful for that. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, look, while boxing and all its ridiculousness may not yet be back, it is inching toward a resumption. Uh, later on this podcast, Eric and I will look at the latest updates in that regard. Uh, but meanwhile, you can still catch some of the sport's best moments on Showtime. It's this Friday night on the network, the May slate 
of boxing replays continue or concludes, I should say, with a doubleheader of Leo Santa Cruz rematches. Two excellent action fights, actually. His 2017 victory over Carl Frampton to even the score between those two and his 2018 win over Abnomares, which repeated his close triumph of three years previously. So Eric and I will talk about those fights and a bit about fighters over the years who've had great success in rematches. And then we're going to be joined by a guest who knows a little something about Leo Santa Cruz. And that guest's name is Leo Santa Cruz. Ah, how about that? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So that should be fun. Uh, it's the first time during this run of Showtime Boxing Replays that we will be speaking to one of the fighters involved. And in this case, the fighter who got his hand raised, Eric. Yeah. Uh, so uh, looking forward to that. But uh, but before we talk to Leo Santa Cruz, before we discuss uh, the boxing replays we'll be watching this Friday night or uh, at the end of the show, the news there covering the real live boxing we're hoping to be watching soon. Let's take our weekly detour into pop culture and discuss what we've been watching since last we spoke. So, Kieran, what you watching? So at the urging of my TV watching partner here in rural Vermont, uh, Sarah Jean, um, she and I have been encouraging each other to watch each other's favorite movies and TV shows. Um, she's the one who's responsible for me watching Parks and Rec and Shit's Creek, so good taste there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so her urging, I gave the first episode of Snowpiercer uh, a go, and that's the new drama on TNT. Uh, and that's based out of, of a movie, uh, which was directed by Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite. Ah, okay. Um, are you at all familiar with the original Snowpiercer movie or anything? I've, I've, with- I've heard of it, um, and I have seen Parasite, as I think we've discussed. Okay. But, uh, but okay. nope, uh, can, couldn't tell you any, anything about it. Okay, so the, the, the plot, basically, it's based, based on a French graphic novel. Basically, the idea is attempts at sometime in the future, attempts to geoengineer Earth's atmosphere to combat global warming backfired drastically and plunging the Earth into this this terrible giant snowball. Um, and so the only those who can afford it become the last passengers and they book passage on a thousand car long train that circles the globe. But right before the doors close for perpetuity, a bunch of the Poe people managed to leap on board. Um, because they demand access, and over the years they foment a rebellion, yada yada, class warfare, etc., etc., etc. And so, anyway, so apparently it's a very good movie. I haven't seen the movie, but this TV show is like a reboot of the plot, um, featuring Jennifer Connelly in a starring role, which is never a bad thing. Nope. Uh, unsure about it after the first episode, but prepared to keep on going there. But that is just an adjunct to my main watching over this last week. Let us cast our mind back, if you will, Eric, to those hazy, lazy. Naive days of seven days ago. Okay. If you remember, I had convinced myself that I was happy, nay, thrilled that I would have to wait for a while until seeing season six of Shit's Creek. <laughs> and then my podcast partner told me I could watch it on demand. And I did. All of it. <laughs> and it was fantastic. Okay. I mean, as we've talked about before, it's just, that was a series that just got better and better and better as it went along. I thought the finale was wonderful. Uh, I'm so glad I got introduced to that show. I absolutely uh, adore it. And I can't say very much more, really, because I'm, I, there may be other folks out there who have Netflix but not cable. And so we'll have to wait and t- to see that final season. The only thing I will say is Moira Rose dressed as the Pope is a thing to buy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that that was a nice touch. Uh, um, on your in your on-demand uh, pursuit of uh, of the final season, did they also have available the sort of hour, hour and a half long, whatever it was, retrospective? Re- Watched uh, it last night. Okay, okay. Awesome. Um, 
Yeah, because that that aired the same night as the finale. I'm trying to remember the order. I think the finale aired and then they showed that afterwards. But okay. uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was really cool to watch. But yeah, you definitely are, are much closer to my wife in terms of your opinion on the show. She has it like in her all time top five or ten favorite shows. Whereas I liked it very much, but it was. I, I never was quite like, oh, my God, this is one of my all time faves as I was watching it. I just, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. But for her, it is like a, a defining show. And it sounds like it's uh, I would be, on a I would similar be very level close to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I thought it was an absolutely magnificent show. And, I, and it's one of those things where, you know, that retrospective, they had other folks and fans of the show sort of slightly bemoaning the fact that it ended so soon. I'm always in favor of a show ending sooner rather than too late. And I think they did a very good job of this is a great show. Let's end it now. Yeah, before, I think I think the characters had all evolved the yeah. right amount. And you didn't want to, like, let them, to use a boxing term, you didn't want to let them marinate any longer waiting for their <laughs> evolution to be complete, I would say. Right. No, exactly. What about yourself, then? What else have you been watching? Well... It's too bad I used my veritable smorgasbord line a few weeks ago, because uh, it would really apply this week. I watched a whole bunch of stuff. Um, first off, as you know, because I was DMing you questions, uh, let's plug the home network, Showtime. I watched the Homeland series finale, despite having missed the previous 50-some-odd episodes. Um, I, uh, I didn't totally get what was going on, but I got the gist. It was nice to see Carrie and Saul again. Also good to see Costa Ronan of the Americans. Uh, apparently, he'd been on the last two seasons of Homeland after the Americans ended. I had no idea. Um, if you're not familiar with the actor or don't know who I'm talking about, it's Yevgeny on Homeland. I figured it. Okay. Uh, um, so anyway, I'm glad I watched the finale, even though I couldn't fully appreciate it, uh, would, would be my take on it. Um, in addition to that series finale, I watched a season finale. My wife and I finished the third season of Fauda, uh, but nothing more to add since last week. Just a, a really good season. Also, young Eli and I are on to season two of Parks and Rec. Uh, Excellent. He's, he's into it. Definitely a big Andy Dwyer fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, that figures. <laughs> yeah. Um, now on to movies. I watched three this week. The full family watched Forrest Gump, the, the edited for TV version that aired on CBS a couple of weeks ago, which... I hoped because it was edited for TV might mean that Forrest's first sexual encounter with Jenny would be cut, uh, but no such luck there. So a uh, little bit of a little bit of awkwardness in the room as uh, we waited to see if any questions would be asked, and they weren't. Uh, but uh, have you seen Forrest Gump recently? Yes, but not an edited for TV version. What do they do? Just cut out the bit where he shows LBJ his butt, or what? <laughs> Um, now I'm trying to remember if they even kind of showed that, but blurred it. Uh, I mean, they you know they bleep out a couple of curse words. Um, but not, no, not much else. That's the thing. I, I just had that one scene in my mind as something that, uh, boy, that could be a, a little bit, uh, awkward to, to watch with a 13 year old and a 10 year old, but, uh, but they went ahead and showed it anyway. And I guess it's certainly not graphic. It's all implied right. what's going on, uh, just, just below camera frame there. Right. Um, but so, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a light edit, uh, I guess, but so, so you, you, it's how, been a, to be fair, it's been probably... 18 months or so since I last came across Okay, it. but that's still that's still pretty recent. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious uh, then, then for, for your opinion, because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I really can't decide how I feel, feel about that movie. Like, it's kind of great and a little bit awful at the same time. Like, right. it, it, it feels like it really depends on your mood and how much cheesiness you're okay with on a given day. It's certainly, it, it's certainly enjoyable from start to finish, but... 
the longer that time keeps marching on, the more absurd it is that it beat out Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption for oh, Best dear. Picture. Um, right. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to crap on Forrest Gump. It's it's very entertaining, and my kids both really liked it. Um, but I, is, is, is your opinion similar? Yeah, I think that, well, certainly it's absolutely ridiculous that it did beat those movies out for Best Picture, but I like it. I think I somewhat, at this point, it's become one of those things that's so familiar and comfortable. It's like finding that old coat in the coat rack that you haven't worn for a while <laughs> uh-huh. and you put it on and ah, you know it looked really good back when you bought it and you know it looked pretty stylish and now it just looks kind of dated and a little embarrassing but you put it on and god it's kind of comfortable and <laughs> i could happily wear this quietly while no one's looking and you know eat some ice cream and watch tv it's kind of like that it's like i it, it's not challenging but it's so familiar at this point yeah. like just about every scene is so familiar i think and um and so much of the dialogue is that it's it, it, it yeah it's just kind of comforting I, I like it but i agree with you that it was certainly you know in a, in a tremendous year for movies it was not the best picture right that is a that's a great analogy about the old code that's the best analogy <laughs> i've heard since some guy compared uh, life to a box of chocolate <laughs> yeah, that, that's right um i'll just uh, one additional note on Forrest gump uh, is that watching it with my kids it was interesting that they did not get a lot of the historical references ah, right. um and uh, and on top of that uh they were getting a bit bummed out over the course of it by the fact that every famous person between the early 60s and early 80s got assassinated or at least faced an assassination attempt. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky as a parent to know how much of the the world is awful and scary stuff to shield your kids from. Right. And uh, they were definitely like, what the hell was with all the shooting of famous people by the end of that thing? Uh, um, yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> strange times. Strange times continue, but it's with a, a little less uh, uh, assassination of celebrities these days. That's all. <laughs> um, and so last thing that I have to uh, tell you is uh, that my son and I knocked out two Arnold movies this week. Okay. Uh, the Arnold collection binge is in full effect. This week we dug into Commando and your fave, Predator. Nice. Uh, so he liked Predator. He loved okay. Commando. Oh. Uh, that that movie is so up a ten year old boy's alley. Uh, and I prefer Commando too. It is it is just the right level of stupid. Um, <laughs> so so that's that's everything I watched. But uh, the real important what you're watching news of the week is this. Steve Farhood informed me that he and his wife finished Breaking Bad, and right. Mrs. Farhood has correctly declared it the best show ever. Uh, Steve thought it was great too, but didn't love it quite as much as his wife because of rooting interest problems. Um, no spoilers, but uh, you, okay. prob- you probably know that Walter White, uh, well, uh, he-, he breaks bad. He does some bad things. Indeed. Anti-hero, if you will. Yes. And uh, so the bad things he did bothered Steve more than they bothered his wife. But, uh, but anyway, I say, well done, Farhoods. Ball's in your court now, Mulvaney. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Plenty of other things to watch first, beginning with, he says, with one of his patented segues. Well done, yes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This Friday at 10 p.m., when Showtime will air a pair of outstanding 12-round bouts, with the common theme that they were both rematches to close 12-rounders, and they were both won by Leo Santa Cruz, the popular high-energy Southern California fighter who has, over the course of a 13-year pro career already, won belts at 118, 122, 126, and 130 pounds. Uh, We go back to 
January 28th, 2017 at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas for a crowd of 10,085 boisterous fans. Remember those days? <laughs> Remember those days? Some of them from Mexico and California, many of them from Belfast. What Santa Cruz avenged the only loss of his career, defeating reigning fighter of the year, Carl Frampton, by the narrowest of majority decisions, 115-113, 115-113, and 114-114. Then we'll go to the Staples Center in Los Angeles, California, on June 9th, 2018, where even greater crowd of 12,505 fans watched Santa Cruz repeat his 2015 victory over Abnomares. The first one uh, was a majority decision. The rematch was unanimous, but again, closely contested. 115-113, 116-112, 117-111. Should probably have begun all of this with spoiler alert for those people. Who <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> ah, well, what are you going to do? Um, Eric, give us one thing to watch for in each of these fights. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll go out of order and hit the Morris rematch first. Uh, for starters, while you should watch the whole thing, if you happen to tune in late, if you're flipping channels and you notice it's almost over, still go ahead and turn it on because the 12th round of that fight is fantastic. In round 12, Morris threw 134 punches and Santa Cruz threw 129. That's in a single round. Uh, the CompuBox numbers don't always tell the story, but... In this case, they do. Uh, the, the whole fight had a tremendous pace, and it's really remarkable how similar the punch stats for the rematch were to their first fight. In the first fight, Morris was 226 of 977 for 23%. In the rematch, he was 208 of 931 for 22%. In the first fight, Santa Cruz was 373 of 1,054 for 35%. In the rematch, he was 357 of 1,061 for 34%. Like almost identical fights, wow. yeah. Uh, and this is just a, a really fun, high-volume fight. Um, as for the Frampton rematch, uh, the thing to watch there is how Santa Cruz made strategic adjustments after losing the first fight. Sort of. Uh, he, he said he would box more and keep it at distance more, and he did. He used his height and reach more, but it wasn't that different. Because the, the thing about Santa Cruz is, even when he fights tactically, he still gives in routinely and trades and makes good action. The Frampton rematch does have a slightly more measured pace than the Morris rematch, but it's still 12 fairly nonstop rounds. Mm. Um, and, you know, I have to say, re-watching some Leo Santa Cruz, he reminded me a little bit of another fighter we talked about on a recent podcast, Chico Corrales, in that he has these long arms and good boxing skills, but he tends toward fighting inside and exchanging instead of ever really maintaining the distance with a lot of discipline. Then again, Santa Cruz doesn't have Chico's power, so it's definitely not a perfect comparison. Uh, so tell me, Karen, what do you think of, of that comp, and is there anyone else Santa Cruz reminds you of? Yeah, I could see that comparison. And definitely, you know, one of those fighters who theoretically could make life easier for himself, as right. was the case with Chico, yet... Fortunately, for, for the rest of us, chooses not to. Um, and, you know, it just clearly is, despite those physical advantages that one would think would make him feel happier, sort of at least in mid-distance, just obviously is happier um, and, and feels he's playing to his strengths more working on the inside, um, but also does have the capacity to stand outside if he wants to. But it's interesting. It's uh, he's, he's somebody who I think it's difficult to draw a direct parallel to any one fighter because he's got that little unique combination but he's got looking at him i could see bits and pieces of a bunch of different fighters um 
and you know you just mentioned this huge number of punches that he can throw uh in that respect i think the way in which he could just barrel forward basically put his head on his opponent's chest and just throw a bunch of punches there's an element of wayne mcculloch there i um, i i was about to i could sense that name coming out of your mouth right before you said it yeah <laughs> good call good call uh so there's a little i mean you know the, the difference is that that was Wayne's, the entirety of Wayne's approach, really, as much as he would dispute <laughs> right. it. Um, and I also think, and I, and I love Wayne, but I think, you know, Leo Santa Cruz is better than Wayne. Um, and even though his KO percentage is not much different, might actually remarkably be a smidgen lower. You know, a lot of Wayne's KOs were against the lower level fighters and, and he just didn't, you know, score any stop, really stoppages or knockdowns against the top level guys. I do think that even despite that, Santa Cruz is more inclined to torque those power punches. He's far more likely to to see him stagger or hurt his opponents than Wayne mm-hmm. ever did. Um, and like Wayne, he's sturdy as hell. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing that they've, that they've got in common there. I also thought this might seem like a, even more of a, more of a reach, but you know, you're talking about, you know, somebody who's got these lengthy arms, but fights on the inside when he wants to, it's an element of Paul Williams there, right? Like Paul mm-hmm. Williams was another guy who could box perfectly well on the outside, but also could throw a lot of punches, right? <clears throat> he had now a lot of times he would overwhelm his opponents by throwing a lot of punches from distance, but also he could just jump on a guy when he wanted to just look at Carlos Quintana and their rematch. So, right. so there's an element there that one's more of a stretch, but I was trying to be clever. Um, and the other guy he reminds me a smidge of is one of my favorite fighters of all time, which is Aaron Pryor, who was just a goddamn buzzsaw when he wanted to be. He would right, he could be on you like white on rice, could throw a suffocating fusillade of punches, just be on you, but also did have that ability when he figured it was more in his in his sort of uh, best interest, could take that half step back, could box beautifully from like the half distance, the mid distance and box the pajamas out of you. Um, so those were some of the guys who came to mind who wouldn't necessarily have come to mind if I didn't know you were going to ask me that question, but except, <laughs> except McCulloch, except McCulloch. I think right. that one sort of immediately leaps to mind, but yeah, I think he's, but he's kind of unique, but I see some of those guys, all elements of some of those guys in, in the way he fights. Yeah, I, I can see all of those. Uh, and the Paul Williams one is, is only a stretch in the most literal of senses that yeah. Paul <laughs> Williams was a little too long almost right. for like he's he's whereas I think Corrales uh, and Santa Cruz are the same uh, slightly taller and longer than most of their opponents kind right. of thing. Paul Williams takes it to another level. Right, right, right. I I almost went to Sebastian Fondura, but decided not to. Either. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be a reach. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, all right. As we mentioned, the common thread in the Showtime replays uh, is that they're both rematches that Santa Cruz won. Um, these are the only two opponents that he's fought twice. And both times he did a little better uh, the second time around, uh, which got us thinking a little bit about uh, fighters throughout history who excelled in rematches. So, look, we're not going to do any definitive rankings, mind you, or anything like that. We're doing the first names that spring to mind right with this conversation. Um, So give me a few of the first names you thought of, Eric, when you started considering the topic of boxing's best rematch fighters. Sure. I'll give you three. The first three I thought of, I think they all fit this well. The first fighter who sprung to mind, and this might be an odd one to think of first, uh, but it's actually someone who had a brief career as a Showtime broadcaster, uh, Antonio Tarver. In 2000, Tarver suffered his first loss, an upset decision to Eric Harding. Two years later, he avenged it by fifth-round knockout. 
2003, Tarver lost a close decision to Roy Jones. I think we all know what happened in that rematch. <laughs> and in 2004, he lost a close upset decision to Glenn Johnson uh, and got revenge with a clear decision in the immediate rematch. The only rematch he ever had that he didn't win was against Chad Dawson, although by then Tarver was 40 years old. And he still did do a little better in the rematch than he did in mm. the first fight. Um, next up, a more obvious choice, Joe Lewis. Uh, Max Schmeling, of course, hard to improve yeah. more than that yeah. from fight one to fight two. <laughs> yeah. um, Arturo Godoy, split decision the first time, KO8 in the rematch. Abe Simon, KO13, then KO6. Buddy Bear, seventh round DQ the first time, KO1 in the rematch. Of course, Billy Kahn, much easier the second time around. And lastly, Jersey Joe Walcott, a highly controversial decision win for Lewis the first time, but he scored the 11th round KO in the rematch. Joe Lewis, I would say, probably the number one seed in mm. any discussion of best yeah. rematchers ever. Um, and the third one I thought of was another heavyweight Lewis, uh, spelled differently, Lennox Lewis, who famously suffered two losses in his career, both by knockout and stopped both opponents in the rematches, although the Oliver McCall rematch was a weird one, to say the least. Um, and Lennox's other rematch, technically, officially, he did improve from fight one to fight two, going from a draw against Evander Holyfield to a unanimous decision win, although I and most people think Lennox did much better in the first fight. So he's a yep. bit of a flawed choice, but uh, still one of the first names I thought of. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, I was actually never ringside for a Lennox Lewis fight. Um, oh, wow. Rings, ringside with Lennox Lewis. Um, right. it, it surprised me when I sat down and realized that. Um, I was ringside for Tarver's two, first two fights with Roy. Um, and man, the shock that rushed through the arena <laughs> when he knocked out Roy. I think along with uh, Marquez finally knocking out Manny Pacquiao, I think that's the, that's the most single most electrifying moment I've felt ringside. The mm. I, when Roy went down, I just assumed that it was just a, you know, a flash. Not right. And I thought there was no way. And then to see Roy stumble as he got up. And it was one of those amazing things where within seconds, you could see everybody whip out their cell phone, not to record, <laughs> not to record it, but to tell everybody, holy crap, Roy Jones just got knocked out. Um, yeah, that was one of the uh, the all-time great rematch, uh, rematch performances. I think we should begin every podcast with, what are your excuses going to be tonight, Eric? <laughs> It's impl it's implied that we're coming in with lots of excuses. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've picked three guys too. Um. And uh, let me see. I have only been ringside for one of these, and that is Floyd Mayweather. Um. We mm. talked only very recently about Floyd's success in rematches, um, of which he had just two: Jose Luis Castillo and Marcus Maidana. Um. The first fight with each of those guys, I think, are the only two where there really remains a constituency who who believes he lost. Uh, I, for one, didn't feel that he lost the first Castillo fight, although I was watching it on TV. And like you, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, I think it's a real reach to suggest that he could possibly have lost that first fight with Marcus Maidana. But as we also discussed, there are those who cling to that notion. Um, mm -hmm. Anywho, we don't need to talk about this too much because we did address it a couple of weeks ago. But although the Castillo rematch was again close, I don't think there's anyone outside the Castillo family who thinks the Mexican won that one, uh, even if they do think he won the first fight. And, and Mayweather, as we recently discussed, far better and far more in control uh, in the second Maidana fight um, than he was, at least for the first half of the first Maidana fight, which is testament to the fact that Mayweather was not only an exceptionally skilled and talented boxer, but also a very hardworking and a very intelligent one as well. Um, Mayweather's most devoted fans insist, of course, that he is the best ever, but there is only one, the greatest. 
And that, of course, is Muhammad Ali. Um, unlike Mayweather, he was involved in several rematches in his career. Um, he improved his standing in all of them, although not always without some controversy. Um, when he was still Cassius Clay, he was floored by Henry Cooper in the fourth round of their June 1963 meeting. Uh, that was Ali's last bout before becoming world champion for the first time. And, of course, that was the famous split glove fight where Angelo Dundee bought him some precious time to recover, uh, whereupon he stopped Cooper on cuts in the next round. A great One of those great sliding doors moments in the history of Wagner. Yeah. wasn't it um then when they met again 35 months later ali was largely untroubled once again slicing cooper's skin open boy henry cooper just had the most fragile skin for a for a boxer and stopping him in the sixth and between those two of course came his two fights with sunny liston both of which had elements at least of controversy around them as we discussed with shauna sale the other month mm-hmm. um Liston retiring on his stool after six in the first encounter in February 64 and then being stopped in the first round of their rematch three months later. Uh, He, of course, lost to Ken Norton in March 1973, but then beat him on points twice more after that. Although there will be those who will tell you he should have gone 0-3 rather than 2-1 with that particular rivalry. Um, He beat Joe Bugner once on points, and then he did it again. Quite how Bugner managed to get two shots at him, I'm never (laughs) sure. Uh, And then, of course, he he lost his title to the on Spinks in February 1978, and then won it back again seven months later. And feel there's one other one in there. There's one other... Ah, yes! Most famously... In just his third fight back after an absurd and enforced absence of more than three years from the ring, he lost that epic battle with Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden on March 8th, 1971, before outpointing him at the same venue a little over three years later, and then finally halting him in the heat of Manila in October 1975. And what really should have been the final fight for both men. So much did their rivalry and that particular war take out of them. Um, But while Ali was the greatest... He wasn't the greatest. (laughs) That title belongs surely to Sugar Ray Robinson, who didn't even have a loss to Avenge until his 41st pro bout when he dropped a decision to Jake LaMotta. Now, he'd already outpointed LaMotta once, so that doesn't on its face sound like a man who should be opposed to child of rematchers. But then he beat LaMotta again, and then he beat him again, and then he beat him again. And then on February 14th, 1951, his record by this time, 121, 1, and 2... He beat him again, stopping him in the 13th and about so one-sided it was dubbed the Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, He beat Bobo Olsen, Hall of Famer Bobo Olsen, four times. The first, third, and fourth times by knockout and the last two in the early rounds. Uh, He lost his middleweight title in an upset to Randy Turpin after spending most of the months leading up to the bout carousing across Europe, but then whooped him so badly in the rematch that Turpin was never quite the same again. Uh, he dropped a split decision to Carmen Basilio in September 1957 and beat him by split decision in the rematch in March 1958. Now, his rematch record wasn't completely cut and dried. Uh, he dropped a decision to Gene Fulmer and then knocked him out in the rematch. All good. But then he fought him twice more, uh, drawing the third time and dropping a decision in the fourth. And in two cracks at Paul Pender, he couldn't get a win. But to be fair, by the time of the second bout, he was 144-7-2 and and on the downslope, which goes to show that no matter how good you are, if you fight enough opponents enough times, there'll probably be one that you just can't get past. Right. Yeah. Um, with uh, with Mayweather, of course, being an exception uh, to that rule, although he didn't fight 170 odd times or whatever Robinson ended up with uh, by the end of his career there. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Mayweather. This was a guy who usually dominated a fight more as it went along, as we discussed a few weeks ago. So it makes sense that 
he would be more successful in rounds 13 through 24 than he was in rounds 1 through 12. Although, uh, ultimately, I'd say uh, in in both the Castillo rematch and the Madonna rematch, he did maybe like one round better each time in the rematch than he did in the first fight, but still an an improvement. And and yeah, no no controversy about either of those second fights. Um, Ali certainly belongs here. his first three losses all avenged, although never easily. You know, he never right. he never pulled a right. Lewis Rockman two on any of these right. guys. Um, but and then Ray Robinson, uh, it's sort of interesting to look back on his uh, many middleweight title reigns and the fact that he yeah. had many middleweight title reigns because they would end that he would uh, he would sometimes take guys lightly the first time, thus setting himself up to improve in the rematches. Yeah, that was definitely the case with Randall Turpin, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, as always, you know, uh, listeners. Tweet at us and uh, let us know who we missed. Chances are we missed one or two or 50 really obvious choices. (laughs) Yeah. So fire a few of those at us uh, if you think of some obvious ones that uh, that we left off. Um, But man, with the exception of Tarver, these are all all time greats that we're talking about. And and, and Tarver is an all time very good, a guy who I think deserves to at least get his name on the ballot for the Hall of Fame. So pretty darn good company here for Leo Santa Cruz. Yeah. Uh, I'd say if he has one more rivalry in his career where he does better in fight two than in fight one, he becomes one of the first names that we should think of here. Yeah. Uh, but certainly so far in his career. He's done a fine job of carrying on this tradition of some of the greats who learned and improved in rematches. Yeah, that he certainly has. But uh, you know what? Maybe that's enough for now of our thoughts on Leo Santa Cruz. Let's go. Uh, let's go right to the man himself. Why don't we? Uh, joining us now on the podcast is the four division world champion, currently one of the top 130 pound fighters in the world, and a man whose name appears on many pound for pound top 10 lists as well. El Terremoto, Leo Santa Cruz. Leo, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. No, no, thank you guys for having me here. You know, it's my honor, my pleasure, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. I mean, it's great for us to have you. And, and, and look, before we start talking boxing, um, we want to check in on how you're doing in general, as we all cope with the way our lives have changed over the past few months. So, so how are you? How's your family? I know you've got young kids. How's everyone yeah. doing with social distancing and all the challenges that we're facing? Uh, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit hard, but thank God we're doing great. We're still at the house. You know, we stay at the house. The kids stay at the house. They do their homework, activities, like right there with them. And, you know, we, de- let them, we take them outside in the backyard to play and stuff like that. But, you know, they miss going out and, like, going out to restaurants or to, like, some places where I take them, like, to Chuck E. Cheese or <laughs> Incredible Food stuff, stuff like that. And they, they miss all that. But, you know, hopefully we stay safe and then all this ends soon and we go, uh, go back to a normal life. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do, do they understand everything? You know, is it hard to kind of explain what the whole situation is? Yeah, it is kind of hard. They 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 only they they only understand that we're in uh, lockdown. That is, cause they say, oh, we're in lockdown because of the coronavirus. And you're like, yeah, because if we go outside, we could get sick and we could you know, die. And they're like, oh, okay, so they but they don't really <laughs> understand. <laughs> yeah. So in, in yeah. addition to the the challenges of parenting uh, during all this, uh, you also have the the challenge of keeping in boxing shape to some degree. I know that's been a challenge for a lot of fighters. We spoke to Joseph Parker on a video call recently and he showed us his big home gym that he's using to stay in shape i know a lot of other fighters and trainers have actually been in the boxing gym often you know one-on-one between the fighter and the trainer no sparring what have you been doing have you been able to stay in shape in case the call comes to fight in the weeks ahead 
Yeah, you know, I have a, I have a, right here a gym, little gym in La Puente. This is where we come in. It's a private gym. And mm-hmm. we come and we, ha- we have some other fighters. We, we come with them too. And we, we uh, train here with my brother. And, but we train only like a minimum of fighters. And we come like Monday to Friday. We're not training as hard because we don't, we don't know exactly when we're going to come back or where are they, when are they going to allow us to fight back. So I'm just staying ready. I'm staying in shape. And when they tell me, hey, boxing is going to be back, then I'll be in good shape and I'll be ready. Right. So it's basically you're not you're not trying to get in tip top ready to fight shape, but just kind yeah. of ma- maintain a little something. So you're not starting from from scratch when you get the call, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Exactly like that. Yeah. Because if, if, if I'm not coming to the gym, then I'm going to have to start from scratch when they tell me. So right now I'm like halfway. Like I'm not going 100 percent. I'm going maybe like 50 percent right now. <laughs> OK. Got you. Oh, yeah. Um, so in a few days, Showtime's going to be replaying uh, two of your big rematch wins. Uh, the rematch with Carl Frampton in 2017 and the second win over Abner Mares in 2018. Uh, Eric and I were just discussing some of the fighters who seem to really excel in rematches. So what is it about your skill set and your style that's allowed you to do so well in rematches? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I do really good because I have my dad. You know, my dad's a great trainer. He's a great uh, observer, he observes things, and he says he we learn from the first fight. In the first fight, we we did things that we didn't have to do or how we were supposed to fight. And so, for the rematch, we come and do it totally different from the uh, from the first fight. And like with Frampton, my dad said that I couldn't stay inside because Frampton had shorter hands. So if if I was inside with him, he was gonna land the punches first. So. He said to use the reach one, two, keep him from the outside. And that's what we did in the rematch. And we practiced that perfectly. And thank God we came up with the victory. And then with Maris, the same thing. Uh, my dad said that I, I made it a hard fight because I was brawling with him. I was going toe-to-toe with him. But then he said, as soon as I used my one, two, I, and I used my reach, it, was, it made it a lot easier for me. All right. Okay. And those are certainly uh, two of your biggest wins, and, and both are extremely entertaining fights. Also, do you have a, a personal favorite fight of your career, one that maybe meant the most to you, or, or just one that you found yourself rewatching the most because it's so entertaining and fun to watch? Yeah, no, I think it, uh, yeah, the, my favorite, I think, is the rematch against Carl Frampton. Because, you know, mm-hmm. with him, he gave me my first defeat, and my dad was going through cancer, and in the first fight, I lost. Everything was our hopes and everything was down. So when I came back in the rematch and I I beat him, I think I also it wasn't just for me. I also gave hopes to my dad for him to keep fighting with cancer. And because when I got the defeat, I know my dad felt sad too, and he felt it. So when I came back and they said that I was the new champion and I got the rematch. Uh, I was really happy, and, and it, that was the biggest fight for me. Okay, and and yeah, I mean, and I know you're a guy who always shows up in shape and and motivated. But uh, would you say yeah. that that you were more motivated uh, the, for for that fight than for any other that you've ever had? Yes, I think so. You know, because uh, I, I really wanted to win that fight. Because you know, if I lost again to Carl Frampton, I had already lost once. So if I lost mm. against him again, uh, I, and you know, things come to your mind. I was like, uh, maybe it's gonna be time to retire. Or mm. if, I don't, if I can't beat him, then what's the point of me being here if he already beat me? So I was like, things were going through my head. So I was really motivated. I wanted this win, and I went the best shape in my life. Yeah. Mm. Let's look ahead to. 
possible future fights, and especially one possible future fight. There's been a lot of talk about a possible showdown with Javante Davis, perhaps this fall on pay-per-view. Can you tell us anything about how close to reality that fight is? Um, You know, I think that fight is really close. You know, we we both fighters won that fight. Javante has been saying that he want to fight me. I've been saying that I want to fight him. And we have talked to our teams, and they said that it is, you know, really... Possible that that fight is going to happen. It's, there's nothing official yet or anything, but um, I, I know that I want to fight him. He wants to fight me, so it is a matter of, you know, they said the date and the this all coronavirus to end so that they, they could set a, a date. I mean, he's obviously, like you know, like yourself, a top talent. And he's obviously, he's, he's the bigger fighter. He's a big guy for the yeah. weight division. Yeah. Um, what, what do you see in him that, that makes you believe that that's a fight that you're going to win? I think you know um, his conditioning. Uh, he he does good the first you know first four or five rounds, but I think you know if I if I'm smart, if I keep him from the distance and I let him get tired, and then with my pressure, my volume, I'm throwing punches. I think I'm gonna get him tired, overwhelm him, and I think I could beat him a, a good decision like that, or even I could stop him by my mm. pressure and he's gonna get tired. Mm. And, you know, one one thing a lot of uh, fighters have been asked about with some of these bigger fights uh, is the, the question of whether they might have to happen without fans. Uh, is is that an issue for, for you? Or if it's, you know, if the deal if the deal is good and the, the fight can happen, it's it's you're, you're OK fighting a big fight against Gervonta without fans. No, the truth. Yeah. Like I said, no, this is my job. And if I would have to fight without fans, I would be able to do it. I'll go over there and fight without fans. But, you know, I think. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to fight like that. But if I have to, I would do it because you know. I I think we need the fans' support. You know, they're the ones that when they're screaming, they're yeah. supporting you. That that gives you ex, that extra motivation to bring the best out of you. And I think that if if there are no fans, no nobody screaming for you, I think that motivation is not going to be there. It's not going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, last thing that I want to ask you, uh, Leo. I, I I still think of you as a young fighter. But the reality is you, you won your first title eight years ago, and, and you're now 31. So you're at least, yeah. I'd say, middle-aged for a pro boxer. <laughs> um, do, you, do, you, do you feel any urgency to make the biggest fights happen soon, a sense that you only have so many great fights left in you? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's, you know, that's my, my goal right now. That's my main thing. I want to get the biggest fights right now that I can. That's why I'm looking for this fight against Gervonta Davis, because I know it's a big fight, and I want it. Because, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years, uh, I want to retire already because I want to spend time with my family. I want to retire healthy. I don't want to, you know, be like some other fighters that retire when they're like 40 or 39. Right. And, yeah, and, and they can't really, you know, enjoy. Yeah, that's a that's a good attitude yeah. and, and and approach. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I sometimes you hear fighters say that they have a certain age in mind. Like, I want to be retired by the time I'm 35 or something like that. So it's it's not quite like that with you, but just sort of a you want you want to get out at the right time sort of approach, I guess. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, I want to retire at the right time. Uh, that won't be like you know, I'll beat up and and when it, I'm too late already. Right. Leo, you always give 100% in your fights, and that's why you're such a popular boxer. Uh, thanks so very much indeed for all your efforts in the ring, and thanks very much indeed for being on here with us today and for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. No, no, thank you guys for having me. It was my pleasure. You know, I'm, you're great guys, and you know, wish you guys the best. Thank you. Same to you, Leo. Thanks yeah. so much, Leo. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. Oh, no, you're welcome. Thank you, guys. Take care, too.
All right. That was cool. What a what a humble, likable guy. Uh, yes. our, our thanks again to Leo Santa Cruz for making a little time for us. Uh, let's finish the show with this week's boxing news. And most of it concerns what the next few months might have in store in terms of live audience free boxing. Uh, Let's start with the immediate future. A few different items on that front. For starters, the first fight card in Mexico since the shutdown began is reportedly set for Saturday, June 6th at the TV Azteca Studios in Mexico City with 122-pound title holder Emmanuel Navarrete facing an opponent to be determined in a non-title fight. After that, as we discussed last week, it appears boxing will return to the U.S. on Tuesday, June 9th, kicking off a series of top-ranked cards that, as the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported this past week, will run every Tuesday and Thursday throughout June and July, airing on ESPN platforms. The MGM Grand in Las Vegas is the proposed venue, although the Nevada Commission first has to give combat sports the okay. And to that end, there's a virtual meeting scheduled this Wednesday, May 27th. So we should know midweek whether we have a couple of mid-level televised fight cards to preview and review every week. Kieran, give me a sense of your excitement levels and or your concern levels and or your level of confidence that the Nevada Commission will rubber stamp all this. First of all, how unsurprising is it that one of the first guys out the gate is going to be Emmanuel Navarrete? <laughs> yes. He's still going to fight five times this year. <laughs> yeah, long layoffs are, are, are not okay with him. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think as as with a lot of people, I'm certainly ready for some live sport and particularly some live boxing. Um, and look, I think as long as it is behind closed doors, uses, you know, local officials and local production folks um, and, you know, basically local media attending, uh, yeah, so there's as little travel as possible. I, I think it's okay to begin the process of opening up, and that's why it makes sense that the Las Vegas-based promotion company should be doing fights in Las Vegas. Um, mm-hmm. Knowing the Nevada Commission and the folks at Top Rank and the folks at MGM Resorts, I feel confident that they're going to be operating with an extreme abundance of caution um, about this. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I do. I fully expect the commission to rubber stamp this. I don't think there's any way that Top Rank would have announced this much detail if they've not already been in close contact with the commission during this preparation process. This isn't, I think, something that they've just thrown at them. I, I suspect this is a collaborative process between all three parties yeah. um, to get to get to this point already. And so by the time they have that meeting, they will have a lot more information. This is the combination of promoter and commission and uh, a venue that I would want to be the, the first ones to sort of dip their toes in it. Um, and, and and we'll just see how it goes. It feels like it's an awful lot of fights at once out of the gate. But, you know, let's let's see what happens and see if it works. And unfortunately for fans, the way forward, as we've discussed, is going to have to be without fans for a while. Uh, yeah. And then we'll just we'll just take it from there and see how it works. And bit, it's going to be a case of bit by bit figuring what works. So yeah. we will see. Um, that's ESPN and top ranks uh, goals covered. Uh, as for the home network. Showtime Sports President Stephen Espinoza appeared on our buddy Al Bernstein's podcast last week, said that Showtime is targeting July for its first televised boxing card since the March 13th Showbox show that we talked with him about uh, when he was on with us. Um, He noted that he felt June was a little too soon in terms of fighters having time to properly prepare for bigger fights, Um, fights that he believes would be of the caliber that makes them Showtime Championship boxing worthy matchups. And so that's obviously the kind of thing that Stephen is looking at at this point. Um, Does that all make sense to you, uh, Eric, that, you know, the June fights figure, not to be necessarily of the 
the highest caliber, so we say. They're not right. absolutely top shelf. Um, July is when, if states like Nevada, after like experimenting a bit with some of these top-ranked shows, start giving the go-ahead, we will then start seeing the bigger and the better bouts materializing. Yep, that, that all adds up. I think, you know, if Showtime had wanted to come out of the gate with a Showbox card sooner, maybe that could have made sense. But if the first card back is to feature world-class fighters in reasonably competitive fights, that's something where you want at least six weeks or so between when we know a state has given permission and you get the fight signed until the fight actually happens. So, yeah, July. Um, you know, in June, uh, those top-ranked cards, it's Shakur Stevenson against an opponent we don't even know for sure yet, about two weeks out. Uh, there was a report of Alex Saucedo versus Sonny Fredrickson on June 30th, which isn't a bad fight, but that tells you the level to expect, I think, in June. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to Showtime's announcement for July. It does indeed sound, from our sources on the inside, like things are getting close to being finalized for the first card back wait you have sources on the inside <laughs> indeed you were copied on the emails <laughs> <laughs> you have the same yourself. sources must 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 read emails yes, yes okay um <laughs> so uh we talked about the the minor fights in june and the bigger fights in july now let's project out to the really big fights because various entities are talking about significant pay-per-view fights in the fall we talked earlier with Leo Santa Cruz about Gervonta Davis. That's one proposed fall pay-per-view that has been floating around the sources say scene for a few <laughs> weeks. And Leo confirmed for us that, yes, talks are pretty far along. Uh, last week, uh, a couple more fall pay-per-views entered the conversation. One is Errol Spence versus Danny Garcia, with the Athletics' Mike Coppinger passing along that one of those good old anonymous sources of his says that's in the works. And Bob Arum spoke openly last week about Vasily Lomachenko versus Teofimo Lopez, saying he's aiming to make that fight in September on pay-per-view with or without a live audience. So while the two or three biggest possible fights in the sport, fights like Fury Wilder 3 or Fury Joshua or Canelo Triple G3, those seem to be getting kicked down the road to when maybe fans will mm. be able to attend. These next-level major fights could be coming our way somewhat soon. Kieran, thoughts on these longer-range plans? And to drill down on one in particular, is it especially risky if Spence's first fight back after the car accident is against an opponent as dangerous as Danny Garcia? Yeah, I mean, and to go back, first of all, to, to the Leo Javante Davis fight, of course, I remembered afterwards that... Um, you know, that fight was super close to happening before the mm -hmm. lockdown, of course. So perhaps then, you know, it, it shouldn't be a surprise if they're relatively close to getting it done. Maybe it's just a case of readjusting the paperwork and perhaps, you know, changing figures around if they have to do it in front of uh, an empty arena and, and so on and changing people's purses and where the purse money comes from and all that right. kind of stuff, I guess. Um, um, it will be interesting to see... You know, like you said, it looks like the super the super mega fights are going to try and wait until there's a big gate, live gate. And it'll be interesting to see, I guess, you know, if if things evolve to a point where, which I f consider unlikely, everyone starts to think it's going to be safe enough to have large crowds at sporting events in, say, November, then I would imagine that even things like Santa Cruz Davis and Lomachenko Lopez are probably not going to go ahead in September if they could wait a couple of months and right. get live gates too, would be my guess. But if, as 
probably might be the case. Large, large crowds aren't going to be able to happen until March or April or May or God forbid, even when we get a vaccine, then yeah, I guess then, it, then it's more likely to start seeing some of these fights happening. Um, as for Spence and Garcia, gosh, I would be surprised um, if, if Spence were to you know, jump straight back into the deep end of the pool. Uh, that runs a little counter to what uh, to what Derek James suggested to us when we talked with him just a few weeks ago, doesn't right. it? I mean, I don't think he directly said that Spence would have a tune-up first, but he made it pretty clear, I thought, that he wanted to see where the guy was first yeah. before. So that would surprise me, and I don't know if that's just promoters wanting to go ahead and doing that. I don't know if the sources are wrong. I don't know if Spence is pushing that. I don't know if that's a case of Derek feeling after seeing him in the gym that he's actually pretty happy with where he is. Uh, It does feel like it would be an awfully risky thing. Um, On the one hand, you would want to give Spence all the credit in the world. Perhaps part of his consideration is, well, I've been out of the ring for a while. Everybody's been out of the ring for a while. It's not like everybody's getting tune-up fights while I've been trying to recover. So... I don't know. I I would put a big honk in let's wait and see on that one, uh, based mostly on our interview with Derek. Um, yeah, that would surprise me a little bit. But, you know, maybe he's just, you know, he's clearly not wanting for confidence, Errol Spence. And, <laughs> right. um, and perhaps that's just a factor. Maybe he's like, yeah, let's get it done. I don't and, know. And there could be a, a little something going on in your mind when you come that close to true tragedy uh, that you realize, you know, hey. Life let's, is short. Let, yeah, make make the money while I can. Take the big fight while I can, because nothing is promised. So YOLO, as the kids say. <laughs> as they say, yes. Indeed. <laughs> and if anybody knows what the kids say, it's us. <laughs> All right. Um, one last news item to share here. Has nothing to do with upcoming fights. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame made the announcement that it has officially postponed this year's induction weekend, which was scheduled for August 7th to 8th. And is planning to follow the International Boxing Hall of Fame's lead and do a double celebration in 2021. So Andre Ward, James Tony, Miguel Cotto, Fernando Vargas, and the rest of the 2020 inductees will have to wait for a year. The right decision. And it does mean that between Las Vegas and Canastota, Eric... Man, 2021 is shaping up to be a banner year for induction ceremonies. Indeed, shaping up that way. Uh, fingers crossed fingers that the crossed. air will be appropriately safe to breathe in 2021. And uh, hey, if not, boy, oh boy, are those 2022 celebrations going to be something, huh? Right, right. Until that plague of locusts comes along in 2022. <laughs> right. Yeah, so we laugh because otherwise we'll cry. Right, right. and uh, it'll be it'll be fun in 2022 when the locusts come to play back this podcast where you (laughs) predicted it. Yes, indeed. Yes, I for one welcome our new locust overlords. (laughs) It's important to put that in there. All right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Leo Santa Cruz for joining us. Uh, We will be back again next week. Topic and guests to be determined at this time. But we hope we've built up your trust by now. But with or without life fights to cover, we'll come up with something interesting to talk about. And even if we don't come up with something interesting to talk about, we'll talk about it. (laughs) Yes. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.